All right. We're live with another episode of Monero Talk. Um, finally, we have Fluffy Pony on the show. Ricardo Spagni. Um, I, I, he doesn't need much of an introduction, I, I would hope, uh, unless you're very new to Monero. Uh, if you are, this is Ricardo Spagni. He is, I believe, the. are you the lead maintainer of Monero? Is that... So they how- tell me. All right. Uh, <laughs> formerly the CEO, uh, but he has since retired. Um, great to have you on the show, man. And just to clarify, by CEO, we mean chief entertainment officer. Yes, of course. <laughs> uh, yeah, we we had met a while ago in, in New York City, I guess almost about a year ago, when we were throwing the Monero event there, the Monero after party. Uh, and we, ha- we got to have some discussion. It was great talking to you th- then. I'm glad to finally have you on now. And uh, like I said offline, we were kind of trying to purposely wait to invite you as long as, as possible to demonstrate the decentralized nature of Monero. Yeah, uh, there there is no leader in Monero. Is that is that exactly. true? Yeah, I think it's. I think that uh, there's pretty strong evidence of that. Um, one of the things I've uh, that that uh, I've observed is like dev meetings, for example. Like dev meetings happen without me being there, um, and you know if if it required a leader to to sort of take the reins and run with it, then. Um, everything would fall apart, you know, like if someone like me wasn't around. And it doesn't. People just, it's its its a classic open source project. Someone picks up the reins and runs with it. Um, and when they're, not, when they're busy or can't or whatever, someone else picks up the reins and runs with it. Um, and uh, it, stuff just gets done. Um, it gets done probably slower than some people would like. And it gets done um, with, Maybe perhaps not the same focus that a company would have, or that like a you know a, a dedicated team would have, but there's no doubt that you end up with um, I think significantly um, better software quality um, because of the number of people that have worked in it over time. So how active are you in Monero these days? I was going to try to get into this later, but I think this is a good time. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I think I'm pretty pretty active. Um, you know, I, I have a lot of stuff on the go. Um, and uh, that obviously does limit the amount of, of time that I can spend. So I try focus my time on reviewing pull requests and um, merging them. Um, and then of course, arguing with people on Twitter, which is a very important thing. Um, and uh, <laughs> beyond that, uh, yeah, I mean, like, like, that's that's really where my focus is. I, I used to have my finger in a lot more pies. Um, and as the community grew, I didn't need to anymore. And so a lot of that stuff just naturally um, evolved. And, and, you know, like take take the website, for example. The website used to, like, be primarily me working on it. And over time, um, other people worked on it and then it was like myself and some others, um, but I was still doing like a bunch. And nowadays, I don't do anything on the website at all. I mean, I haven't touched anything on the website except like updating the download hashes in ages. So it's um, it's it, it really like progresses at such a rapid pace that um, and and the community is growing at such a great such a fantastic uh, pace that it's, I'm no longer needed, even if I wanted to try and continue to be involved in everything. 
Uh, yeah, so I think the SEC came down with some new, uh, not regulations, but I guess new um, kind of guidance on what they consider uh, security in crypto land. And uh, a lot of the things they, you know, they speak to is the fact that it should be a true open source decentralized uh, protocol, right? Yeah. So obviously Bitcoin falls into that category. Uh, I certainly think Monero does as well. I mean, uh, like with, with all the things you're talking about, uh, the fact that it really has has no leader. Um, anybody can kind of join and start working on it. Do you have any comment on that, on the on the new SEC uh, guidelines that came down? Yeah, sure. So um, the SEC guidelines will never will, will never really matter to Monero. Um, the reason is Monero didn't do a pre-sale. So uh, Monero's fair launch... Um, was like bitcoins and uh, that's very important so monero can't possibly be a security because the security requires a central issuer to have issued at least some um of, of the tokens or whatever um up front and uh, and sold them to people so um in monero's case like with bitcoin miners are the ones that uh, control the emission or that are responsible for the emission rather um, and that's from the very beginning. So there was no way to buy an arrow before the Genesis block. And from the Genesis block, it followed the mathematical um, uh, emission, mathematically bound emission curve. And there was no possible way for anyone to, to sort of um, create any sort of pre-mine or anything like that that could be sold um, to investors. So that is a, a it, it makes things massively different because there's just the SEC could never even possibly consider Monero um, a security because the security requires that central issuer and typically requires a pre-sale. Now, how about with um, the proof of work changes, right? I mean, I was going to get into this later as well, but might as well. Um, so, you know, the fact that we're trying to be ASIC resistant, we could get into the details of what the, that strategy would be. But there are potentially maybe some concerns with wanting to avoid uh being yeah. centralized by by kind of constantly updating our own proof of work is that yeah. one of the reasons why we want to move away from those proof of work upgrades? Yeah. So the the concern there, the regulatory risk is not the SEC. Um, the SEC, you know, again, even if you even if you're centrally controlling a currency, if you're not responsible, if you're not a central issuer, then you know you're not really responsible for what people do with it, or, or and so on. The, the concerns that that, uh, that I have personally that I've identified from a regulatory perspective are several. The first is um, U.S. Treasury and FinCEN um, will go after central bodies that um, influence a currency, even a purportedly decentralized currency. Um, so, I, you know, one of the things that I look at, for example, is EOS. They've got these 21 block producers. Now, a group of 21 companies, people, individuals, whatever, around the world is not a lot. And for FinCEN um, or Treasury to go after them is not difficult. So I, you know, one of the concerns that I have is when we keep making these proof of work changes, because the proof of work changes are separate to privacy enhancements. Privacy enhancements are, um, even if we have to hard fork to enable a new privacy enhancement, that's this, what is clearly a feature um, by any definition. Um, and privacy enhancements don't preclude people from participating, whereas proof-of-work changes are designed specifically to preclude um, these new participants, the ASIC manufacturers. Um, 
now a lot of people might think that doing the opposite and enabling a welcoming ASICs precludes CPU and GPU miners. It doesn't. CPU and GPU owners can continue to mine. They won't mine profitably, but they're not prevented from mining. Whereas when you have this sort of semi-centralized, for want of a better term, um, proof of work change to prevent ASICs, what you're effectively doing is saying, well, you know, we, the central body, um, are controlling this to prevent this participant from using what we claim to be a, dis a permissionless network. So you can understand how a, uh, a regulator can paint this in a very bad light. So now you've got risk from, um, from FinCEN, um, U.S. Treasury, and similar bodies around the world, by the way. This is not just the U.S., but the U.S. is a great reference point um, because the, obviously Monero has a, a, number, a large number of users in the U.S., then you've also got um, risk from U.S. Treasury uh, going after um, it as a currency. So they've gone after things like um, Liberty Reserve and uh, and so on, um, and and other other sort of centrally. I'm I'm hesitant to say cent centrally uh, issued um, uh, centrally issued currencies, but I mean you can have like a semi decentralized currency. Um, Liberty Dollar, sorry, not Liberty Reserve. You can have a, a sort of semi-decentralized se, semi currency like Liberty Dollar tried to be. Um, and, you know, U.S. Treasury will go after you and, uh, you know, you're not, able, you're not allowed to issue your own currency. And so the more you concentrate that, um, that or centralize that, that power, for want of a better term, the more you create a target. So that's the second risk. The third risk is, of course, um, when Monero is used for something that is malicious, that's outside of our control. But now a regulator can say, hey, look, if you guys can change the proof of work every three months or every six months or whatever, then you can certainly um, add KYC and AML and you know anti-terrorism and anti-this and anti-the other. So in my mind, the, the easiest way to prevent uh, this regulatory risk, because the regulatory risk, by the way, is not for the miners. The miners with their CPUs and GPUs carry on mining and they don't care. It's the developers that are making the proof of work changes that put themselves at risk. And I include myself in that as well. So it's in order to move away from this risk, um, one of the, the things that we're looking at now is um, how do we, as a, as a group of developers, as a large group of developers, how do we move away from having these regular um, proof of work changes, that, which is really a centralizing effect? Um, and there's a lot of discussion around that. Um, and, you know, they will still need to be hard forks, but the hard forks should not be restrictive in their nature in terms of who is allowed to use the network or who's allowed to mine in the network. Mm. Yeah, it's, 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 it's an interesting balance, right? Because, I mean, the, the goal with, with changing the proof of work is to create a more decentralized network in terms of mining, right? Which is a step in the right direction to making a, a more pure decentralized network. But in, in what's required to do so is to kind of act uh, from a centralized way, right? By, by yeah. kind of, yeah. so yeah, it's, it's an interesting, uh, it's a difficult thing to do. So, so right yeah. now it looks like the, the goal is to implement random X in October. Is that correct? I know, I guess, that's still kind of up in the air as to whether or not uh, yeah. the audit is successful. And I also heard potentially that Monero Moo wasn't necessarily interested in, in doing it in October. You want to maybe hold off? Yeah, so um, it's, it's super difficult because, um, 
you've got to read sentiment, right? And you've got to, there's a lot of noise from people in the community who are, have pitched, suddenly pitched up, and it they didn't exist, um, uh, you know, in the community five minutes ago, and now suddenly they do. Um, it's you've got you've got to differentiate between sentiment from sock puppets, um, or and the sock puppets could be controlled by all manner of third party, um, and you've got to try and figure out what the true sentiment is the, you know, that, that's coming from the community, from the developers, from miners, and so on. Um, and that's really difficult. But yeah, based on what we're seeing as developers, based on the technical discussions, uh, implementing RandomX in October or early next year is probably going to be the next step. Um, I am of the belief that we should um, have a fixed date for implementing the next thing after that, which would, in my mind would be SHA-3 um, because it's, there's no real major currency that's using SHA-3 right now, so we'd be the dominant hash rate. Um, and implementing it far in, or setting the date far enough in the future, so call it two years or whatever it is from when RandomX goes live, is it gives us sufficient time to maneuver. So if something does happen and RandomX is broken, we can bring that date forward. Um, if we get, you know, it's it's got, it's been a year and uh, the RandomX is working extremely well and the community feels that it's best to push the date out, then the date can be pushed out. I mean, again, these are all centralizing um, centralizing forces, but it can it can be done in a way that is not as impactful as doing emergency reactive hard forks or trying to hard fork um, proof of work changes on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. Overall, does is is that does the community share that sentiment? The develop the developing community do they share that sentiment that uh, SHA three should essentially be a, a hard date should be or a date should be given as to when it would be adopted, or is it kind of uh, like a fifty fifty? Yeah, it's kind of up in the air. I mean, I'm I'm pushing hard for it because I've um, I've, I've been around long enough to know that um, the chances of RandomX being successful in the long run is small. Um, I think that economies of scale will always come into play and someone will find a way around it. Um, someone will find a, an efficiency gain, you know, and that efficiency gain might just be to uh, create an ASIC that just pipelines a small portion of it. And that efficiency gain might only give them a 30% boost, but it's 30% over everyone else and that can be a game changer, you know, for, for them. So it's it's really hard to determine whether it will be successful in the long run or not. Um, so yeah, I'm, I am kind of, in a sense, um, I'm, uh, it's myself and a few others who are uh, quite adamant about setting a date, also because setting a date allows ASIC manufacturers to work towards a goal. They can already start going like, hey, okay, so it's two and a half years away. What do we need to do in order to play play in that uh, in that or play that game and uh, participate in that uh, in that emerging market? Um, what are the the steps that we need to the research that we need to put in now? What's our production look like? You know, they can um, take pre-orders. They can do all sorts of stuff that they, you know, leading up to the the, the actual go live. Um, there are people who think that RandomX will be super successful and will never be challenged. And then there are a couple of people who are suggesting that we look at alternatives like 
you know, could we have like a non-reactionary fork where everything's pre-programmed in, but activates on some condition? Um, I'm not a big fan of that because conditions can typically be gamed, whereas like fork heights can't be gamed. Mm-hmm. Can't get to a fork height faster. Um, but yeah, these are it's 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 immensely challenging. Um, I think the conversations that everyone's having are good. I, I try to participate in as many of those conversations as I want. I mean, as I can rather. Um, I'm certainly not, you know. I mean, I'm pushing. I'm pushing my way as everyone else is, um, but I'm certainly not in control of the process. Um, and uh, whilst I'm hopeful that that we put a, a peg in the ground and pick a date and pick SHA three as an algorithm, it's not the only option um, on the table. And uh, I'm interested to see how things play out. Yeah. Yeah, I, I encourage anyone who's listening to this and uh, kind of learning about uh, this issue for the first time. We just did a, a great show on it previously. We had uh, Howard Chu on and a few others. Um, so do you do you think today Monero is more decentralized in terms of mining than Bitcoin is? Bitcoin being obviously purely ASIC mined, uh, a couple of manufacturers producing those ASICs and a couple of big miners running them. Do you think we're effectively currently more decentralized in, in those terms? Um, I'd be hesitant to say that. Um, you know, like I can tell you right now from my perspective, and I know that that that, that people have uh, have different views on this as well. But from my perspective, there are a, a several ASIC manufacturers um, that you know, whilst a lot of the ASIC manufacturers are in China. Uh, you know, a lot of the cell phone manufacturers are in China too. Um, uh, it's not a that's not an uncommon thing. But there are ASIC manufacturers around the world, um, and uh, they're all producing interesting things to a greater or lesser degree. Um, and I think that that is quite promising. Uh, as seven nanometer ASICs come out, I think we're going to see a um, very we're going to come up against a performance wall very quickly. And so manufacturers will not be able to present new equipment that has massive gains because they'll all be manufacturing on roughly the same level. And the jump from seven nanometers to five nanometers is massive. And that's many, many years away, I I would imagine. Um, At the same time, where miners are placed has also spread out uh, with Bitcoin. So um, mining used to be very heavily dominated by Chinese miners. Um, and uh, then there was a big scare, um, the, you know, about the Chinese government banning mining. And so a lot of miners moved out. Um, and so there are large mining farms uh, in the U.S. There's large mining farms in Europe, um, particularly like Sweden and Norway uh, and Greenland and Iceland. Um, there's installations that have, uh, have gone up there. Um, and then you've got other things like Mongolia, Vietnam, and, and so on, where um, relatively large mining farms have gone up, where they've got access to cheap power, where the weather plays uh, plays its part, and it's not in the middle of you know Saharan Africa. Um, and uh, and I think that that I don't think we're going to get much further along the road than that because you know. Frankly, there's a limited number of countries where you can build an efficient mining farm. Um, partly because you need reasonably good internet access. You need weather that is predominantly cool, or at least cool for you know um, some months of the year. 
Um, you need uh, access to cheap power, whether that is something that you build yourself or that the government provides access to. So you you know you need like this this combination of factors, and that doesn't exist in like um, Australia in the outback, um, and it doesn't exist in South Africa. And so you know I think we do need to accept that, regardless of of how of whether it's ASIC or CPU GPU mining. Um, it's always going to be dominated by large farms, and those large farms can only exist efficiently in, say, 30, 40 countries. And that's how mining is going to decentralize in future and will continue to. Mm. And obviously, so you you think Monero is obviously on that on that same track. We're just a little further behind, but the end goal will be this. the The end result will essentially be the same. Yeah, so basically, sorry, yeah, I forgot that you asked about the comparison between the two. So, um, yeah, I would say that Monero is on the, on the same track. Um, I think one thing that, that people seem to seem to forget, and I've seen this crop up in, in this proof-of-work debate quite often, is that CPU and GPU mining appears to be egalitarian um, at a particular market cap or, you know, sort of uh, reward size or whatever. Um, but as the, the the value of something like Monero grows, um, then the potential reward for miners grows. And that's when you start getting more and more professional miners. And and you get these, like, you know, this, this ever-increasing number of professional miners. And then eventually the small home users are crowded out. And all you really have are, like, highly competitive, um, large-scale farms, you know, that are competing against each other. And then... A couple of kids in dorm rooms that are abusing the free electricity, and and that's that's your mining component, um, and and I think that that's where Bitcoin has gone, and honestly, ASICs help with that because it's it's easier to build an industrial class ASIC than to than to create an industrial level mining computer. Um, it's easier to cool them, you know. You can do all sorts of fancy things like you can buy a container filled with ASICs to mine Bitcoin. You drop that container down wherever, plug in power, plug in internet, and off you go. Um, and they exist right now. You can go buy them. Uh, but, you know, that sort of thing doesn't really exist for GPU mining um, just yet. Uh, it does to some degree, but um, not quite the economies of scale that you can get with ASICs. But it definitely will go there if something like Monero had to continue to increase in value. We've seen massive improvements in um, industrialization of GPUs for Ethereum mining. Because Ethereum mining has been so profitable, so you know if if Monero mining has the potential to be that profitable, we're going to see exactly the same thing happen. All right, and then I, I guess with the end goal of you know even if that does happen, then the next stage is uh, the ASICs become so easy to make and manufacture that we start to see them, um, you know, in our, in our like. Our daily electronics is that kind of when it then comes back to being decentralized again when it's yeah i mean the, that's obviously the that's the the ideal right is that you end up with commoditization of asics and uh, i mean already there's a bunch of crypto instructions that are pipelined in modern cpus um so aes for example which is an encryption algorithm um there's this thing called aes ni which is aes next generation instructions and that's part of every Intel processor and more recently every AMD processor um, that you get. And it accelerates AES encryption. Um, now you can imagine 
something like SHA-3, if, if, if Monero had to adopt it, it had to become really popular. Um, SHA-3 is useful for things outside of Monero. So pipelining it in the CPU or even having a coprocessor, like a little ASIC on the motherboard that's specifically designed for SHA-3 um, is not a difficult thing. Um, and, you know, whether that is something that happens, I don't know. Um, whether mining ends up being dom still dominated by large-scale farms despite something like that happening remains to be seen. Mm -hmm. So uh, a constant theme in this show, really the main theme is always kind of this pursuit of whether or not Monero is digital cash or, or which crypto is the closest thing to digital cash. Um, I obviously currently think Monero is, is achieving that. Um, what, what's your opinion? Has Monero become digital cash? Are we digital cash? Will we become digital cash? Are we the best form of it out there? Are we better than things like Bitcoin and Zcash in terms of, uh, of being the utility of digital cash? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I used to think one coin was digital cash. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, digital cash is, is interesting because um, it's, it is, I think, the ideal that everyone is striving to, you know, striving towards. Um, and I think that Monero is already pretty good digital cash. Um, I don't think that digital cash has like a security requirement, like it must be sufficiently secure based on whatever. I think it needs to be reasonably secure, which Monero is. Um, and, uh, and you need fungibility, which Monero has, um, and, and does pretty well in, um, our privacy enhancements are certainly not perfect, but they're enough to have if, what is effectively fungibility. Um, and, and I think that there's sufficient decentralization um, such that the cash is not centrally controlled, which is definitely an aspect of digital cash that, uh, that, that is desirable. Um, you know, otherwise, it's just a centralized token, which isn't really cash at all. Um, so Monero, I think, to a large degree, already is digital cash. I'm interested to see um, what how that plays out, you know, because now we've got regulators starting to take an interest in Monero, and uh, and they have been for a while. And regulators are interesting because a lot of people view them as the boogeyman, like, oh, regulators are just coming to ruin our party. And I, I don't view them that way. I think a lot of regulators have a need for something like Monero. They want to be able to take in campaign contributions in a private way. Um, you know, they, they, regulators are deeply concerned about privacy in their own lives because they, they worry, they worry often about like stuff that is benign, you know, it's, it's personal things like they threw a party and, um, you know, like they're into whatever and they had to go buy a bunch of supplies for that. Now everyone knows. Um, and, uh, and so privacy becomes very important for them. I also think governments are starting to realize that, uh, what, what, what the industry, uh, have realized a long time ago, that privacy is essential for running a government as well, um, for a number of things, you know, and, and that's not to say that I, I don't equate privacy with a lack of transparency, you know, a government can still be transparent. But it doesn't, you know, they, they can choose what to be transparent about 
or they can be forced to be transparent about certain things through through certain bodies and whatever. Um, and that that doesn't mean that everything that they do should be exposed in some sort of traceable ledger. Um, and I, I think that that's a pipe dream that uh, that's never going to happen. You know, governments are never going to. There's no government in the world that's going to say, "Well, we've decided to operate in this completely traceable way and put all of our um, transactions on Bitcoin, so that everyone can see what we're doing all the time." Um, it's just not going to happen. And even if it did happen, someone would figure out a way to cheat the system. So, you know, there'd, there'd be there'd be ways. Um, and and so. Since the privacy technology already exists, I'm very interested to see how these regulators over time and governments and so on look at it and go like, you know, yeah, privacy can be abused, but it has a net, it has, it's, it's got a net benefit, it's got a net positive, and we need privacy in our lives as regulators, as governments, um, and so cool, maybe there's, you know, ways of using this technology in a non-harmful way. Are you worried about some kind of dramatic scenario where the government, you know, maybe the U.S. government come, clamps down and says, you know, uh, whatever, Monero, it's illegal to use Monero? Um, it would be very interesting if they did. I, I don't think that that's a, that's a thing that they will, I mean, it's entirely possible. I don't know. But I, I would find it unlikely that they do. Um, they, they haven't banned things like Tor and ITP. And, and ostensibly Tor has, um, has done damage. I mean, you know, there's lots of, there's things like uh, botnet con uh, command and control servers on Tor. There's the proliferation of, um, of darknet markets. Um, there's child abuse um, uh, media on Tor. So ostensibly uh, the U.S. government could right now go like Tor is bad and so we're, blo we're, we're making it illegal. But I think the positive benefits of Tor are far outweigh um, the the relatively small minority that is abusing it from a, from the government's perspective, um, and uh, and that goes for things like whistleblowing, um, you know, uh, citizens or dissidents in um, oppressive regimes being able to use it, and uh, and so the U.S. wants to set a good example. They want um, they want all of the good things to be able to continue um, on tour, and they they wouldn't want to be. The, the country that bans it to the, um, you know, to, to the detriment of other countries. Mm -hmm. So I think they will do the same with Monero. Um, and I suspect, I suspect given that, the, that Zcash is a project that's housed in the U.S. and is run by a U.S. company, if anyone's at risk of the U.S. taking action, it would be them. Um, and so I, I do watch carefully to see what happens there. Um, and I continue to do so, and it, it's. I think that that's the canary in the coal mine. Um, if the U.S. starts taking serious action, yeah, it all seems to lead back to this. Um, if you if you are actually achieving digital cash and you're you're a true open source decentralized project, uh, then you're kind of on the right track. You're like, yet yeah, regulators may want to, you know, maybe somewhat fearful of you but you become something that can't really be stopped. It kind of goes back to this whole crypto anarchists, uh, you know, uh, cypherpunk ideals, like what all this stuff grew, grew out of, um, which is always something I'm struggling with because I feel like Monero is really doing it right. And I feel like Bitcoin isn't. Um, 
Do you have an opinion on that? I mean, like, like you have Andreas Antonopoulos who gives these amazing motivational uh, uh, speeches about, well, you know, why Bitcoin is here and how it's going to end surveillance capitalism and how it's, you know, all all these great things. But it's it seems to be fundamentally flawed in that it's it's built on a transparent ledger and that just kind of gets glossed over. Or and then you have Monero that that really does seem to be doing it right. It's sticking to those ideals. It's it's really making sh- making its priority that it, it is digital cash that it is fungible. And you don't see these guys these these big Bitcoin guys really kind of helping Monero out if they're really on this mission for for creating digital cash. Why aren't they? bigger supporters of Monero? Um, that's a good question. I, it's hard. I think that the, that the um, Bitcoin maximalists, are, or maximalism is probably the wrong word, but those that believe that Bitcoin is the only thing that will ever exist and everything else is going to fade into, into insignificance, I think they do themselves a disservice because they, they refuse to acknowledge human nature and human nature is that we just can't, we can't agree on anything. We can't even agree on like not killing each other. seems to be a pretty fundamental thing to agree on. Um, and yet we can't agree on that. So I think the chances of the entirety of the world agreeing to use Bitcoin only is like less than zero. Um, and, uh, and so, if you, I, I don't see a future where Bitcoin is the only digital currency that anyone uses. Um, at the same time, I don't see a future where people use Dentacoin to pay their dentist. So, somewhere in between those two extremes is is the world that I imagine, and that world is a world where Bitcoin is a reserve currency, global reserve currency, um, where Bitcoin has sufficient uh, privacy through for individuals through things like um, Lightning Network and and other second layer systems, um, CoinJoin and stuff like that, um, which is already in play in, in a large way through things like Wasabi Wallet. Um, and Monero exists as well for, for the situations where people want to transact privately, um, perhaps more privately than Bitcoin, um, uh, and where multinational corporations want to move money around without tipping off their competitors that they're moving money around. Um, you know, where people in South American countries that are at risk of being kidnapped and extorted for their money uh, are able to still receive their salary because no one knows what that salary is and how much they're receiving. Um, and I think Monero will find its, its use case globally um, in a very large way. But I don't think that we're going. I think I think that Bitcoin is too far along to not be a reserve currency in the future, and I don't think I don't think we Monero particularly wants to try and um, and and fill that role. Um, you know, too much pressure. It's <laughs> it's but but Monero has a big role to play in the future. At least I believe so, and uh, and that's it's not to diminish. Um, Monero's success or, or future success, uh, but I think it will fill a different role than Bitcoin. How about this whole digital gold thing? Um, I mean, again, isn't isn't doesn't isn't gold fungible? How how is how is Monero not fulfilling this uh, use case better than than Bitcoin? Yeah, I mean, 
I, I think the digital gold um, uh, analogy is fundamentally broken in many ways. Um, you know, there's uh, there's just bits and pieces that, I mean, when was the last time you paid anyone with a chunk of gold? You know, it, it doesn't really work. Um, I, I think that Bitcoin, Bitcoin will likely oust the US dollar as a global reserve currency. Um, and that's that's where I view it is its competition is the US dollar. Its competition is not gold, um, digital or otherwise. Um, and and that's really the space that it plays in. And part of the reason that it would play in that space really well is um, and, and where Monero doesn't do so well is that it is uh, very simple um, from a technical perspective. Um, it has existed for over a decade, which is the Lindy effect. So you, you can have a lot of trust in it because it's existed and not gone down and survived uh, many attacks. Um, and, uh, and so you have all of these really attractive things. Uh, Monero is more complicated, but Monero has all this base layer privacy, which is great. Um, Bitcoin eschews that, but then it, ha you know, it also eschews a lot of the risks. So for example, with Monero, we have confidential transactions, which uh, means that the, the values aren't, aren't expressed on the chain. Great for privacy. Fantastic. But it also means that those those values, whilst they are computationally, sorry, they're perfectly binding, so no, they're perfectly hiding, so you can't go and figure out what those values are, they're only computationally binding. So the perfectly hiding bit, great, that's exactly what we want. We're willing to take the risk of economic collapse because someone figures out um, how to break um, the the uh, logarithm uh, the log assumption, but we're not willing to accept the risk of like being computationally hiding, such that you know someone's uh, va the values can be revealed later on by someone with sufficient computational power. Um, Bitcoin doesn't need to worry about that because the values are expressed on chain. So it's you know we're, we're sort of like playing in a much higher risk um, or playing on a much higher uh, risk level when it comes to um, the, the sanctity of the data um, and when it comes to the sanctity of the economy. Um, so I would say that, that that puts Bitcoin in a better position to fulfill that role of um, you know, global reserve currency, which I guess is a form of digital gold. Whereas Monero, we're, you know, we've got these higher risks, which frankly are not, when I say higher risks, I don't mean that we're like, it's you know at risk of it collapsing tomorrow or whatever, but we're certainly at a higher risk from a crypto, crypto cryptographic perspective, um, and that would mean that for Monero to fill that same role would require many many years of Monero's existence um, and uh, things like switch commitments and uh, and so on before people could really start to, to trust it to full to be used on the same level and the same liquidity and the same. Um, the same level of trust. Yeah, that's, that's one of the questions I want to. Is it possible to? Is it technically or mathematically or cryptographically possible to get to the point where Monero is both perfectly binding and perfectly blinding? Um. So you can switch to Algamol commitments. Um, Algamol commitments would get you um, computationally hiding that is pretty pretty concrete. And it would get you perfectly binding, but Algamal commitments would be much larger, significantly larger than even 
um, pre-bulletproof Monero transactions. The thing is that that matters right now, but in five years, you know, when we're all in our flying cars and we have like, I don't know, laser beams beaming, beaming data everywhere and latency is lower, then larger transactions probably won't be as big a deal, but right now they are. So that that plays into the the scalability of Monero. That's obviously one of the largest criticisms. Uh, we have dynamic block sizes, yet a lot of people say we we can't scale. Uh, so you, what do people mean by the fact? Well, why can't we scale? It seems I don't, I don't see why that's even an argument. Um. So I think what what people mean is not so much the transaction sizes. Um. It's more things like we can't, there's certain bits of data we can't throw away. So with Bitcoin, for example, you have unspent transaction outputs, the UTXO set. And when a UTXO, an unspent transaction output, is spent with Bitcoin, that no longer is an unspent transaction output. It's not spent transaction output. And so you can throw it away. You no longer need to keep that data if you're running a lightweight node or a prune node or whatever. With Monero, because of the privacy enhancements, your UTXO set is an accumu accumulator. It grows forever. You, you can't throw any of the data away because A, you need it for, for privacy so you can build a ring signature, but B, you never know if an output is really spent or not. So that makes Monero's, Monero very different to Bitcoin in terms of scalability. Um, Bitcoin's UTXO set grows, but it grows at a much slower rate than Monero's. Monero's UTXO set literally grows with every transaction. Um, and so that is, it's, it's not that we're, that you can't scale Monero. It's just that there are different challenges to scaling Monero. Um, and because of the, this ever growing accumulator, and again, it doesn't mean that, that we won't, that, that the developers or Monero developers aren't focused on improving uh, Monero's performance and scalability on chain. But it does mean that we're probably going to rely more and more on off-chain um, scaling mechanisms in the future as Monero's uh, UTXO set becomes more challenging from a size perspective. And I, I mean, I guess the hope is obviously that we kind of we we evolve uh, in tandem with Moore's laws, right? So yeah. we could we could eventually run Monero or can run Monero on our phones, right? Run a full node well, on our phones. Absolutely. And that's, I, you can already, you know, um, and uh, I, I honestly think that the biggest issue there, you know, storage space is cheap. Um, the processing required for Monero on a modern Android smartphone uh, to run a full node is not that bad. The, the issue there is data. Um, Maybe with 5G it'll be better, but right now the uh, the cost of data on mobile devices is exorbitant, and uh, you know over and above that you've also got the issue of like latency and so on. So it's um, we're almost there, you know, and and in terms of that, and it's uh, it's just not massively feasible right now um, to have a full node in your pocket. Um, but yeah, absolutely, like there's a, there's definitely a future where that's that's a thing. So what, what motivates you in this space? I mean, how did you, are you a crypto anarchist? Are you a cypherpunk? Are you on the pursuit to build digital cash? Are you just into the technology in general? 
Are you just trying to, trying to make a ton of money by uh, buying a lot of scam <laughs> coins? I mean, what, what really uh, what keeps you going? So I'm a, I'm a big believer in the right to privacy, um, pers- the right to personal privacy. I, I think that there's, um, you know, we live in a world where, where digitally people have just given up their privacy, their right to privacy. People have gotten suckered in by Facebook and Instagram and whatever. They post all of their personal details on, on social media and they do it willingly. That's, that's what George Orwell got wrong. George Orwell thought that we, you know, the, this, this Orwellian future would be one where you're forced um, to, to live a, a life that isn't private where there are security cameras everywhere and so on. Um, we don't even need security cameras everywhere because people just give up all their information willingly as long as they can play Farmville. And, uh, and that's a, that's a, it's a pretty bad state of affairs that we've gotten ourselves into. So the thing that drives me is knowing that it's only going to get worse. But if we can build sufficiently usable privacy-enhancing tools then people will start to reclaim some of their privacy. And I'm really grateful for the efforts of companies like Apple for all their, all their issues and all their mistakes and missteps and things that they do that irritate people and so on. Apple's pro-privacy stance is, I'm, I hope, the first in a series of, um, of pro-privacy stances that big companies are going to take. Because it's it's twenty it's twenty nineteen, it's time to stop pretending. We've given up our privacy almost entirely, and the software startups that are building internet facing services, they are extracting as much data as they can, and it's time to stop that nonsense. Yeah, it's time to stop that nonsense. I don't know if you have you read this surveillance cap. Yeah. yeah, it's so good. Yeah, I mean, I that's that's back. Not to interrupt you, but I mean, this is what so this is what really irks me with Bitcoin because then aren't aren't we all opting into this uh, continued surveillance capitalism, right? I mean, Bitcoin being at its core is a transparent ledger, and here we are. It's this new technology being sold as the solution, and everybody's opting into it without knowing what the end result might be. We're going to all be sitting on this transparent ledger. Why not? Sure, sure. Why not start correctly? Why not fix the problem from the bottom up? Why are we? Sure. Why are we risking the fact that oh, we may be able to add fungibility yeah. in the future? So, so Satoshi thought that the that things like um, you know using random change addresses would be sufficient. Um, clearly, he was wrong, and and he did acknowledge in some threads that that Bitcoin's privacy is weak. So he knew that Bitcoin's privacy was weak. And uh, that he'd made design decisions that should have been, that he could have made better, but he made the right design decisions at the time. He didn't have the knowledge that we have now. He didn't know how traceable Bitcoin actually was. So it's too late. That ship has sailed. And I have a suspicion that Bitcoin has gotten as far as it has because of the lack of privacy that regulators have been comfortable with it because of the lack of privacy. They're like, well, this scary technology, oh no, no one can stop you sending money to North Korea. Oh, but at least we can track it on chain so we can see if people are sending money to North Korea. Um, and, and I think that that's a good thing 
because Bitcoin is the thing that warms the regulators up. That regulators go, oh, scary new technology, oh, but at least we have this little thing where we can still track it. And then Monero comes along and other privacy enhancing um, systems like Zcash and uh, Grin and so on that, that have their own set of privacy enhancements. And regulators go, oh, scary new technology, but we're already used to Bitcoin, so this isn't that different. Um, and I think that that's, that's ultimately a net positive. So yes, absolutely. In an ideal world, should Satoshi have built Bitcoin with significantly more privacy? Yes, he should. Absolutely, he should have. And if you, you, know, you read some of the things that he wrote about privacy, by his own acknowledgement, he realized that Bitcoin was not as private as it should have been. Um, but it's too late to change it. And, and you, there are things that you can do with Bitcoin that are privacy enhancing. I encourage anyone that wants to improve their Bitcoin privacy to look at things like Wasabi Wallet, um, Samurai Wallet's trying hard as well. Um, Join Market still exists. Um, and, you know, like the, the, the more liquidity there is for things like CoinJoins, the better. It's not going to be close to, to Monero's level of privacy, but it might be sufficient. Um, and uh, there's other things like Schnorr signatures and Taproot and so on that uh, will continue to provide privacy and or room for privacy enhancements. So I do think we are going to get to a world eventually where privacy is the default with Bitcoin. Um, it, again, might not be as private as Monero. I think that adding something like confidential transactions to Bitcoin is a non-starter. I don't think that e even with Elgamal commitments, I don't see that happening. I think that the, the economic risk is too high. But ultimately, it's, you know, the, the, we, have the, we, we can't go away from the situation. We can't change Bitcoin now. It's too late. Um, but there are slow incremental changes that can be made um, to improve Bitcoin's privacy um, and to, to make the world more receptive to technologies like Monero, which focus on maximal privacy. Let's. Uh, I'm, I'm just trying to get you to bash Bitcoin. You just. You just won't bite at it. <laughs> um, the tail. The tail emission. Um, that's obviously you know an, another distinctive feature that we have versus versus Bitcoin. Um, yeah. It's you know we're we're disinflationary in that we keep adding Monero, but at a slower rate. But we'll always be adding Monero. And the idea, I guess, is that there will always be an incentive to mine Monero. Whereas Bitcoin lacks this, and then there's there's been talk recently that this might be an issue in the future for Bitcoin. What's your opinion on this? In what you know, how Monero is doing it versus how Bitcoin is doing it? Would Bitcoin ever consider raising its 21 million cap to uh, kind of add a tail emission if it needs? Yeah, to? I, I don't think that Bitcoin will ever change the emission curve. I think that would fundamentally damage um, the social contract. So I think that that's definitely not a thing that's going to happen. Um, I think that that Monero's choice to to have tail emission, um, and and I was the person who sort of pushed really hard for that. I think that uh, and and you know very early on in Monero's uh, history, I think that that the the reasons were solid. The reasons still exist today, um, and that is that we want to have a great deal of um, security as the the block reward gets smaller. Um, Bitcoin has to rely on fees in a fee market uh, to develop, and that is more complex. Um, 
I there's no I can't say that one is better than the other or one is more right than the other. I don't think that's a thing um, that you can possibly look at because it's too it's too new. I mean, it's it's 2019. Monero's four years old. You know, we have uh, or, or going on five years. We have absolutely no idea what's going to happen in the future. Um, but I do know that uh, that Monero's um, disinflationary nature is going to make it significantly easier to secure the chain because miners will always be incentivized. So, you know, even if they, the Monero's transaction fees are not massively high, they don't need to be because miners will always be incentivized to earn the block reward plus whatever breadcrumbs are in the fees. So it's it's a different approach. Um, it, you know, I don't know if one is better than the other. Um, it's just different. And I think that we're going to find out probably only in like 10 or 20 years, we'll look back at it and be like, wow, that was a really good choice. Or like, oh, well, it didn't actually make a difference. Or wow, we, we made a dumb choice. Bitcoin was the, you know, we needed a fee market. Um, so like, we don't know now. It's too, it's too premature to, or, or it's too, everything's, everything's too new to really be able to make that assertion. Mm -hmm. Was it modeled after, or the reason why we added it was, I mean, obviously it said to continue the mining, but it's also, I mean, isn't that closer to gold as well? I mean, gold, it will always be mined. It's not like you cap out on gold. Uh, was there no, any thought to that from an economic no. perspective? It was really just that we wanted to we wanted to make sure that there was always a an incentive to mine, um, and then we struggled with the percentage. So, you know, we bounced we we modeled a bunch of things like, you know, five percent inflation and so on, um, and ultimately, like, we settled pretty quickly on um, that it needed to be less than one percent. Mm -hmm. um, and Taco Time was uh, was a big um, advocate for sub one percent. Um, Taco Time and Smooth in particular pushed for sub 1%. And, uh, and I, I mean, I can see the wisdom in that. Um, and so, yeah, then eventually we just locked it in like, uh, you know, a, a, a fixed block reward. And uh, the fixed block reward works out to 0.8% um, or so annually at the, you know, when it kicks in. And then the percentage decreases over time. Mm -hmm. Let's, uh, you want to talk about Tari? Yes, I can. <laughs> I wanted to. Uh, well, I also want to talk about Lightning Network too. Is Monero moving towards that as well? Will we have Lightning Network on Monero? And then I also hear, you know, talks of Tari uh, having Mimblewimble as a side chain. Is that something that will be done instead of Lightning on top of Monero, or is that in it something separate? It seems like they both would kind of achieve the same thing. So it's it's very, they're very different things. Um, Mimblewimble is not as scalable as Lightning. It's it's a fantastic technology, but you st so so let me if I can illustrate it. Yes, probably the best way to illustrate it with Mimblewimble and with Monero and with Bitcoin. When you create a transaction, your transaction gets broadcast to every node. Every node gets a copy of that transaction. Then a miner mines it, and that transaction goes into a block and gets stored on the blockchain. Um, the same thing happens with Mimblewimble, except instead of the whole transaction being stored, it's just a transaction kernel. But the transaction being broadcast still happens. It still gets broadcast throughout the network, you know, through this through a gossip protocol. Now, that makes it inherently less scalable than Lightning, which is rooted. So with Lightning, you've got all of these nodes in the network, 
And if this node wants to pay that node, then it's going to get rooted eventually to there, like traffic on the internet gets rooted. Okay, so that's you can see how that's inherently more scalable because a transaction that is rooted from payer to payee, um, even if there are twenty hops in between, it's still only twenty nodes that are involved versus twenty thousand nodes that are involved in that transaction. So it's it's significantly more scalable. Um, Lightning is still very, very, very young. There is the, the routing software is not complete. There is lots of work that still needs to be done on Lightning. Um, it is super early days, but Lightning has a lot of potential. Um, Monero would need to add certain things in order to uh, uh, allow for Lightning uh, or allow for transactions to work over Lightning. Um, and it's super early days for Monero to do that as well. Um, Tari Labs has had a bunch of people work on Rust Lightning for the express purpose of eventually uh, making that work with Monero. But it is a long way away. Um, the more we dig into it, the more we realize that it's, it's going to be extremely challenging to, to um, make it work with Monero. Not impossible, but challenging. Now... Here's the thing, um, whether, whether we pursue that as developers or not doesn't really depend on anything other than like just that slow pecking away at it. Um, it doesn't, there's no like, requirement for like, oh man, if we just had funding, then we'd add support or whatever. So that slow pecking away is happening. And it's, I think that it, we're doing it at the right pace. You know, no one in, in Monero land is saying like, oh, don't worry, we will all use Lightning on Monero and it'll solve all the problems. You know, we're not abandoning working on main chain improvements. We're not focusing solely on Lightning. There are a bunch of developers that are picking away at, at different things. And one of them is Lightning as a scalability mechanism. I don't even know if we'll get it working, but it's a thing that we're picking away at. Um, Tari uh, Labs is building, uh, was contributing to Tari, and Tari is a Mimblewimble-based chain. It's merged mined with Monero, um, and yes, absolutely, at some point, uh, depending on, on, on how things go, I'd like to see atomic swaps work between um, Tari and Monero so that people can very easily and efficiently move from Monero into the this Mumble Wumble sidechain and back out again. Why would they want to do that? Though? Like I, I could see, the, you're, we're going to be using Lightning to scale. Why are we going to be using uh, Mumble Wumble on Tar? Maybe we aren't going to be using Lightning to scale. See, that's okay. the thing. So okay. it's at, at this point in time, it's in, it's there are there are lots of unknowns. So you know, we basically like I've said this before um, on Reddit, and I'll say it again. Every single possible scaling technology should be pursued if it's, if it's a, a sound, sound scaling technology. So Lightning, um, this mobile mobile sidechain, all of these things should be pursued. Um, the minute we stop and only focus on one, we're basically choosing not to act on something else. And we don't know what's going what's gonna to be successful. We don't know what's going to be fantastic and what's going to work. It remains to be seen. We've got a, a lot of work ahead of us on both sides, on you know, on potentially making lightning work, and on this mumble wumble sidechain thing. Um, but it is 
it's all in play, you know, and it's in play in the, in the best possible way in this very transparent, open, open way. Um, so yeah, anyone that wants to see what, uh, what Tari, what, uh, um, Tari's trying to accomplish and so on, I suggest joining Tari Dev on Freenode. Um, there's a bunch of stuff being done. There's ongoing discussions on RFC. There's RFCs being put up and so on. Um, and, uh, and Tari Labs is a big um, aspect of that because obviously Tari Labs is a big contributor, um, but it's an open source project. So anyone can contribute. And in fact, we do have people um, contributing who aren't part of Tari Labs. And that's, that's the culture we want to continue to push is Tari Labs is just a contributor in, in this grand scheme of things. So, you know, I mean, I, I suggest anyone who um, who thinks that, that uh, the, the Mumble Wumble sidechain stuff is cool, um, go take a look and see, like, you know, oh, I've got this cool idea for how we could do atomic swaps. Go have that discussion. You know, I mean, like, there are a bunch of unanswered questions, and uh, those are open, and, and we're willing to, everyone in the channel is willing to talk about it and figure out the best possible way forward. Um, so, yeah, that's... Tari, Tari ultimately is its aim is to be this mumble wumble based chain um, with a decentralized assets layer on top of it um, because I think that natively digital assets are exciting um, and it will it will add functionality that is um, add functionality to Monero um, via Tari which I think is is very interesting because it's not it's it's then just not not just currency you know it's all sorts of other things that you can do. Um, like loyalty points and in-game assets and in-game tokens um, and so on. So there's really exciting things coming. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, when I hear you talk about the use case, potential use cases for Tari uh, and being able to tokenize things, why don't you, do you purposely not talk about ICOs and how they could potentially be launched on Tari as well? I mean, obviously that, that was the, the, the kind of the killer app for Ethereum. Yeah. Um, is that something that Tari won't be able to do or just something you rather not uh, promote as being a use case for Tari? So Tari will be able to do it. Um, I tend to, when I do speak about it, I tend to focus more on STOs than ICOs. Um, I, I find security tokens very interesting. Um, so absolutely, security tokens can be issued on Tari or will be able to be issued on Tari when it's launched, when it's live. Um, I think the trick there is going gonna, is gonna to be to see how um, the, the regulatory space plays out with STOs. Um, STOs are inherently centralized. You know, you have a central issuer. The fact that, it can, that a token can take on a life of its own thereafter and, you know, be traded by people that the issuer doesn't know is almost, is, is, is an intrinsic part of the, the STO, but it's almost irrelevant because you still have a central issuer. You know, an STO still presents, represents um, a piece of a company, which is a central body. So it's very different to like currency, you know, and I think that, uh, and, and all digital assets have a central issue, um, the, the sort of digital assets that Tari would allow. Um, so yeah, like it's, it's not that, it's not that we, we don't, we won't disallow anything. Um, but I think ICOs are largely giving way to STOs um, as the regulatory murkiness clears up. When could we expect to see some some applications actually growing out of Tari? Something that would that would be usable or so? I mean, look, Tar. You know, there's a if you if you go on the the Tari GitHub and um, you know you hang around in the Tari Dev channel, 
you'll see that there's a lot of work being done. Code is finally starting, you know, scaffolding starting to be put into place for co- for the code. Um, there's still a lot of RFC sections that are, are empty um, as uh, the stuff gets discussed and fleshed out. Um, so I would say, like, I mean, I, I have no idea how, you know, how long we still have before we hit any sort of test net. Um, but it's not going to be soon. You know, it's, uh, I would be surprised if it happened this year. Um, maybe it might, but it's, you know, hard things are hard. Building a protocol from scratch is hard. Um, especially one that is, uh, is considerably more complex than hitting the fork button on, on GitHub and launching your own Monero or Bitcoin clone. Um, that said, you know, as to when um, any real projects will be using it. Um, so there are projects right now that are um, looking to use Tari. Um, and uh, they're also sort of like a year out from launch, a year plus from launch. Um, and uh, and I think it will be, it, it'll be a slow, steady process, but it, when it when it kicks in and when uh, these projects um, go live on Tari, it'll be, It'll be interesting. What what made you wake up and say, "Hey, I got to I got to focus on Tari now, uh, not so much Monero." Let 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 me uh, start building this other layer. Uh, I, Bitcoin, I guess, had what was it? Colored coins, or yeah. Yeah. Uh, that didn't really work out too well. Or I guess I don't know. Are we seeing any use of that on Bitcoin? Not so much colored coins, but Counterparty, Counterparty. Um, had a greater success. So you know, like so, one of the things that happened was. Um, uh, I like I did a lot of thinking about like porting Counterparty to to Monero, and in fact chatted to some of the Counterparty devs, um, and myself and uh, and Naveen, one of my other Tari Labs co-founders, um, and we were like Counterparty is really cool. Could we do it on 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 Monero, and could we do it better? You know, I mean, could could we make it more scalable, um, more secure, and add privacy to it as well, um, and it didn't really like we looked at it and it, it, it just was too much effort, you know? Um, and, uh, and we wouldn't really have accomplished what we wanted to accomplish. So ultimately we were like, okay, cool. So then like, if we're not going to do that, let's do something from scratch. And if we're going to do something from scratch, what would it look like? Um, and Mumble Wimble was still pretty new when we started discussing this. Um, and I was really excited. I still am really excited about Mumble Wimble as a technology. Um, and I was like, well, let's use Mumble Wimble as, as like the base layer. Um, and then we just like, you know, merge mine it with Monero with a view to adding um, some sort of atomic swap uh, mechanism later on. Um, and that was sort of the initial idea was like a spiritual successor to counterparty using um, Mimblewimble bolted on top of Monero. And, and it sort of developed from there. Okay. And I, I guess it's something that you see as being essential to cryptocurrency. I mean, if you're going to have these this proto- these protocols that are acting as digital cash, you're going to need this, eventually need this second layer or other uh, service to kind of do these, um, uh, you know, tokenization of things, of assets. It's kind yeah. of an inevitability, I guess, in, in crypto, right? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, I just wanted to go back from... So, to swing back from the beginning where we were talking about how, you know, essentially you, you obviously are by far not the only uh, developer in Monero. In fact, you've kind of uh, let others kind of take, take the reins a little bit. Who in Monero is, is, is 
should I should I have on the show? Who should we be talking to? Who's doing a lot of big things uh, that that people don't really know about? Uh, who are kind of like the unmentioned heroes of of Monero? Um, good question. There's a lot of guys on the on the GUI team um, that work on the GUI that I I think are are the unsung heroes. Um, especially like the, the the guys that are focused on the the GUI translations and that sort of thing. They do a lot of work and no one really speaks about them. The fact that the Monero GUI is available in so many languages is really the entire the, the work of a bunch of translators and like one dude who like like herds them. You know, cat herding is, is difficult, but you've got someone's gotta corral the <laughs> corral the herd. Um who else? Uh, the guys that are that are doing stuff on like Tiny I2P, um, which is also very interesting. Um, those are, are are things that I'm paying key, uh, close attention to. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, like beyond that, uh, you've got the the usual suspects. A lot of which you've already had on your show. Um, and uh, and I think like what the other thing that that could be very could be very interesting is. Um, some of the reporters um, that that uh, like Monero, I'd love to, you know, hear an interview with them where you get their take on, like, what does the space look like from their perspective, and, um, you know, what's Monero doing right, what is Monero doing wrong? I mean, they're they're so like hyper exposed to everything from good projects to scams, to technical people and non technical technical people alike, to salespeople and all sorts. It would be really, really good to like get a sense from them. That's a good idea. Um, how about reproducible builds? Is that something that's we're going to see soon? And is that also help kind of decentralize the development of Monero? In that we're yeah. it, and if you could explain uh, that, I don't really understand even what what technically sure. what what it is. So um, a guy called the Charlatan um, has done a bunch of work uh, on reproducible builds. We would not have anything close to reproducible builds were it not for the effort that he put into it. Um, and uh, I'm proud to say he's a fellow South African. So <laughs> it's uh, it's kind of cool. You know, there's a whole two South Africans that are involved in Monero development. Um, and uh, basically the way reproducible builds work is you've got um, an, an environment that gets spun up. And this environment, in this environment, and it's a normal like little Linux environment, there's a bunch of, of things that get changed to, to normalize and harmonize the environment so that my environment that I spin up is exactly the same as one that you spin up. And then we both compile the Monero software. And you can have like 30 people doing this, and they don't have to do it at the same time. They can do it whenever they, they want. And they compile Monero locally on this little environment that gets spun up. And when they're and, and it, it cross-compiles. So in this little Linux environment, it compiles for... Windows and BSD and Linux and Mac OS and everything. It just cross compiles. And it takes it takes like a while to run. So you know a couple of hours or whatever. And then when it's done, then I take all of my binaries that have been built. So all of the, the builds for Mac and Windows and Linux and whatever. And the hashes of those should match the hashes of yours. Because and should match the hashes of anyone else that's built. Because this the clever trick here is that reproducible builds, um, the, not only are the environments harmonized, but then the build process is harmonized. And there's all sorts of like very difficult things and very clever tricks that have to be taken in order to make sure 
that um, the compilers follow the same paths because compilers, modern compilers, especially C and C++ compilers, are built to do all sorts of really clever things like, oh, this variable is you know used a bunch of times here, and so um, I can do that more efficiently you know, when I'm compiling it, and so I'm going to take this little shortcut, and I'm going to you know, have this little efficiency when yeah. And so you don't want to disable those, um, but you want to make sure that they all, that all the builds are following the same path. Um, and then there's other things like, you know, the dates and times on files. If they're different between different environments, then we might end up with slight changes to the file. And a single byte difference can mean that my one has a different hash to yours. So it's really like, it's, a bunch of clever little tricks to make sure that these two are built exactly the same way in this like harmonized, homogenized environment such that we end up with the same hashes. And the upshot of this is when it's time to build and release, I'll build and release, and a whole bunch of other people will build and release, and then we'll all sign the hashes to say like, yes, these 30 people or even two people um, were able to get the same binaries. And it's not so much a, it doesn't decentralize Monero more, but what it does do is it makes the binaries a lot safer because now it's not just me building the binaries because I can put all sorts of code in there to steal people's Monero. Um, it's other people building the binaries and confirming that the binaries um, that I've built are safe. Sounds good. So it's it's Monero's fifth birthday, I think, uh, next week or uh, two weeks, right? Uh, oh, the anniversary. The anniversary. How how you feeling about it? Um, have we come far? Are we? Are you are you happy about our current state? Yeah, we've we've come we've come incredibly far. Um, when I think about Monero's uh, Monero's interesting start and and the uphill battle that we had for many years, um, I'm really proud of where we've gotten to. Um, I think that the uh, we've built a really cool community. Um, the people have come and gone in the community. They've come. They've been there. They've wanted to, you know, they've wanted to celebrate the wins and get rich. And they've realized that the Monero community is not really about that. The Monero community is about building cool technology and building technology that enhances people's um, enhances privacy for people and gives them better lives. And I think that that's that's where we're at. Yeah, uh, you know, I, I know you're you're not the CEO of Monero, like we said, but uh, we we have to give you a lot of credit for this, uh, especially I think the way in which the community has evolved to have this kind of open-minded scientific approach. I think you really kind of always hammer that home and everything you say, which I think has gone a very long way in kind of keeping the community pure. So. Yeah. Uh, uh, a few years ago, you were at Coinbase, and uh, everyone thought we were going to be added to Coinbase. Never happened. Is it is it now kind of a badge of honor that we haven't been added to Coinbase? Do we no longer even want to be added to Coinbase? No, I'm I'm deathly afraid that they might add us. It's like, please don't add us, guys. You know, your your opportunity was a few years ago. That opportunity is gone now. Just just leave it. Leave it. It's fine. <laughs> Which we're doing okay without you. Yeah, I don't. I don't think we need them anymore. Yeah. But uh, I, I guess the last thing we should talk about is uh, this conference. So, uh, when did you get into the conference business? This uh, what 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 motivated you guys to do that? 
I don't know. When did I get into the podcast? Business? <laughs> I mean, like, it's, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's not, it's, it's been interesting. Um, I, I, I don't know why, like, like what kicked it off. Oh no, I do know what kicked it off. Consensus last year was, oh, it was so not enjoyable. And it was just like so many like ICOs and shills and suits. And what we really wanted was just a conference that we could go to and enjoy. And no one else was doing it. So we were like, we'll do it ourselves. And it is, man, it's been a lot of work. I mean, there's definitely a lot of excitement around it. And uh, I think a lot of people shared that opinion last year. I didn't go to consensus, but everybody I spoke to kind of yeah. had that same opinion. So um, yeah. I think it's a pretty good niche that you guys are playing into there. Yeah, no, I think it's going to be, we have an extremely high caliber um, group of speakers and uh, it's it's going to be really good. I'm I'm really, really looking forward to just having that group of speakers in the room and, and, you know, letting people enjoy like a bunch of really practical, really interesting talks. Cool. I'm very excited, excited for it. Uh, let me know if you need me to pick you up at the airport. We are New York based. (laughs) 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 All right, man. Thank you for doing the show. It's been great. Uh, I think uh, I took a lot of your time here, so I'll let you get back to your, to your day. No problem. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Thanks, man. I'll see you. uh, I'll see you at the conference. Absolutely. All right. So long. Cheers.